Uh, it's good to have you in worship today. Uh, I'm going to spill the beans a little bit earlier uh, than normal today. What do I mean by that? I mean, what I mean is this. I'm going to tell you what I'm talking about right up front. Okay? Uh, this morning, I want to share a little piece of my life with you through the words of Scripture and integrated into that. Um, I want to I share a piece of my life with you, the piece that's known as foster care. Um, for nearly three years of our lives, my wife and I have opened our home uh, to foster children that have needed a safe place to live. And you, in a very real way, um, have participated with us in that endeavor. Uh, you have held their hand or fed them a bottle or seen them bolting through the church. Uh, you have comforted them when they were sad. You have cared for their needs. So you've been part of it. So when I share my story, my family's story, really I'm sharing a part of your story as well. Um, but in the context of this story, I also must not neglect the ministry of preaching the word. So with your permission, or without your permission, <laughs> I'm going to start there. <laughs> uh, if you brought your Bible, please open them up to the book of James. If you have devices, feel free to pull those out and point them to the end of the first chapter of James. Um, and as you're pulling out your devices, uh, I want to encourage you um, to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter and to visit our website. We have all of those things, um, and each of those are a great way to stay connected to what's happening uh, with our church. So I want to encourage you to do that. James chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 27, and we're going to continue on into chapter 2. So James chapter 1, verse 27, and continuing into chapter 2. Uh, in reverence for the reading of God's word, would you please stand as we read? James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. My brothers and sisters, believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here, here's, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, uh, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Skipping down to verse 12, it says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
Now, the Nazarene Church, of which I'm a part, they've ordained me and said, go preach the word. Um, the Nazarene Church used to take a pretty hard stance on a cultural pastime uh, known as going to the movies. Now, for some of you in the room, stay with me, no one's left yet, okay. Um, <laughs> for some of you in the room, you might remember those days if you've been connected to the Nazarene Church a number of years, um, and it might, take, it might make you chuckle about what, at what I'm about to do. I want to show you a trailer of a movie <laughs> that my family went to go see this past week. I'm confessing up here. Um, uh, I took a week of vacation last week, and, and we took the opportunity to go catch this movie, uh, a recasting of an old favorite. Uh, so I want to show you this quick two-minute trailer for the movie Annie. Take a look at the screen. They're coming to inspect. You gotta clean this whole place up. Aren't they supposed to give notice? Aren't I supposed to be married to George Clooney? Who's George Clooney? Exactly, girlfriend. Exactly. <laughs> no breakfast till this place is spotless. Yes, Miss Sandy, wait! Stop! Why are you running? It gets me places quicker. Little kids. Will, this is really going to help your race for mayor. He's a foster kid from Harlem. I'm here on behalf of Will Stacks, and he would like to take Annie out for lunch. You can keep me as long as you want. <laughs> She's kidding. So what's the hustle? The more we're seen together, the better it is for my campaign. I bet if I moved in with you, you'd become president. You're not really thinking about doing this. Whoa. So this is what it's like living with a billionaire? The worst thing in the world you can get is a little taste of something good because it never lasts. And from then on out, the only thing that you can taste is not that taste. Huh? Do something nice for Annie, not just for the press. You get that sick? I've never been in the air before. I threw up on the swings once. Made you something. That's me, and that's you. Your secret's safe with me. That you care. It's a miracle. We found her parents. We think so. Well, hey, this is a joyous occasion. The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow. We're gonna be okay, Sandy. There'll be sun. The sun will come out tomorrow. So you gotta hang on till tomorrow. Come on, man. When did this city get so musical? Sometimes what you're looking for is right in front of your face. Hey, Mr. Will Stacks. Look for me, Colleen Hannigan. Like me on Facebook. I don't like you in Harlem. Why would I like you on Facebook? You think you're better than me? I do think I'm better than you. <laughs> I don't like you in Harlem. Why would I like you on Facebook? It's a great line, great line. It's a pretty good movie, at least what I saw of it. I missed some of it due to um, younger folks, and they didn't make it all the way through. Uh, so it isn't really an endorsement of the whole movie, but just a way to, to set up our story today. Um, if you're familiar with the old Annie, uh, this rendition makes a few changes. Uh, Annie is no longer in an orphanage. 
uh, but finds herself in a foster home. Daddy Warbucks is replaced by a mayoral candidate that has lots of cash named Will Stacks. And Mrs. Hannigan is still horrible, and Grace is still wonderful and sweet. Um, we'll, get, we'll touch a little bit on the movie a little bit later, but let's get back to Scripture. The first word, the first word of the passage I read to you, religion. Oh, that first word. We have a, lot, we have, we have a whole sermon right there. Uh, religion has a bad rap sheet these days. It's not popular to believe in religion, to talk about religion, or to acknowledge religion, or heaven forbid, the granddaddy of them all, being labeled religious. Oh, someone called me religious. I'm not religious. I just follow Christ. Have you heard that? <laughs> I'm not religious. Don't call me religious. I think, I think religion has developed a brutal, rep- brutal reputation because of the exact thing that James is talking about in a verse prior. So if you still have your devices pointed there, if you still have your Bibles open, look at verse 26. It says this, those who consider themselves religious. Let's pause right there. The word that's translated consider um, in, in the Greek, the, the translation literally translated uh, comes out the word seems. So if someone seems religious, yet they do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, they deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. The author nails it for us right there, right then and there. He nails it for, for you and for me in America in 2015. Had to get that right. I think James has a very insightful word for us as to why people can't stand religion and people who are religious. Um, Peter Davids in his commentary says, this verse describes one who indeed has the proper ritual and doctrine, but fails in the ethical results. I'm going to say that again. Peter Davids in his commentary says that this verse, verse 26, describes one who indeed has the, has the proper ritual. They do the, the right spiritual things. And they have the proper doctrine. They believe the right spiritual beliefs. But who fail in ethical results. In contrast to this, the author's doing a compare and contrast. So he lays out one example. In contrast to that, we have the verse 27. This points to an entirely different person. Again, from David's, this is the one with correct religious practice, which also assumes ritual and doctrine, yet leads to the proper ethical action as well. What does this look like to have the ritual and to have the doctrine and to have the ethical practice, the whole package put together? According to verse 27, we have the answer, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James offers us a picture, a little snapshot of what it might look like to have this, what I call an integrated faith, ritual, doctrine, and practice. An integrated faith with all three of those components. And, and I'm led to a question here. I like to ask questions when I read. Do you ask questions when you read Scripture? I hope you ask questions when you read Scripture. Sometimes I find the answer. Sometimes I don't find the answer. Uh, but asking questions helps me engage with the text. So my question is this. Why is this the picture he paints? 
Why is this the picture that the author of James paints? Why does he choose orphans and widows? There's a first answer, a first answer that's fairly clear and, and fairly, offset, fairly obvious. There's plenty of precedent set by the rest of Scripture. When, when reading any book of the Bible, it is critically important that we view it um, in the light of the rest of Scripture. So we don't just focus on one verse, or we don't just focus on one chapter or one book, but throughout the whole, the whole Scripture, we view each of, each of the passages that we read. We don't read verses in a vacuum. If this were the case, someone might take this verse and say, my whole life of faith is meant to be wrapped up in serving and caring for widows and orphans. That's what religion that is pure and faultless looks like. So, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I need to find an orphan. <laughs> find me an orphan. Find me a widow. Um, I'm gonna, I'm, I, I want to I start doing something. I want to be pure and fart, faultless. My 10-year-old boy would really enjoy that, so I'm going to play that for him. I want to be pure and faultless. That sounds pretty good. So why don't we, I hope we don't do that. I hope we don't do that. I hope we don't, we don't, I hope we're not doing that to verses, taking one verse out of context and say, this says that religion that is pure and faultless cares for orphans and widows, so I have to go find that one specific thing, because we have to look at the whole tenor of Scripture, the whole Scripture in its entirety. It says that to have right ritual and right practice, we need to do that. Um, Like I said, the precedent is clearly in Scripture, that we're supposed to care for orphans, and we're supposed to care for widows, You're not going to have time to look all these up right now, but if you'd like to look up multiple passages, I'm going to give you a few, so get your pen ready, okay? Uh, If you miss these, you can listen to them on the website, but Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, Deuteronomy 14, 29, Deuteronomy 24, from 17 to 22, Jeremiah 5, 28, Ezekiel 22, verse 7, Zechariah, uh, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 10, Job, verse 29, verse 16, Acts chapter 6, the first six verses, and 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 16. All of these verses, every one of those passages speak about how we're to to treat the parentless and to treat the widowed that we find in our communities. Again, you can catch those later online if you can get all those written down. So yeah, the first answer is right there. The scripture is clear. When you open up the rest of this book, it says, there will be people among you who are parentless. There are people among you who you need to care for and reach out to. But the second answer that I found, remember the question? The question was, why would the author paint the picture this way? Why would he describe a pure and faultless religion as caring for orphans and widows? The second answer I found goes a bit deeper and causes me to think, hopefully causes you to think too. The second answer says, Orphans and widows have nothing at all to do with them being orphans and widows. It it doesn't matter that whatever group that we put in there, the connotation here depicts that the author has simply chosen people who were cast aside by society. Perhaps they feel forgotten and alone. These are the least of these that Jesus talks about in Matthew 25. Remember when he said, whoever does this for the least of these does it for me? The orphans and the widows 
of the author's day were those who unjustly struggle because of their situation. They're the marginalized, the oppressed, the inconvenient in society. Very certainly, in the times in which this book was written, these two classifications of people, the orphans and the widows, met all of these criteria that I just read. They were islands, they had no means, and they had no connectedness. They very much relied upon the generosity of others because of the nature of their cultural and economic systems that they had. They were stuck, and they had nowhere to go. And it makes me ask another question. Who is stuck in our world? If the author were using our society to write this book, what are the two examples he might use or more? Who are the people that God would call us toward to share their story, to share their pain, to heal their brokenness? If if God's call is not specifically to orphans and widows, and I truly believe it goes far deeper than that, then who is the other for me? The other is a huge concept that God, God has been working with me on. Who is the other? The other is is that guy, the guy over there. It's, it's the woman who, who I don't and I can't understand, so why would I bother trying? The other is the one who thinks so completely different than me that there's no use in trying to reconcile or even have the conversation with that person because certainly I can't learn anything from him. The other is the parent who fails to bond with their child due, due to some reason. Who knows? and now shares that pain with her child. The other is the person on the other side of the line. You know that we all kind of draw lines sometimes? I know I do. Sometimes I draw lines. And the other is the person on the other side of that line that says, in which I'm very comfortable saying, man, I'm different from that person. And And I'm glad. I'm glad. Who do you place on the side of the other? Who do you place on the other side of the line? I wish I could let you pause and think, I, I wish I could pause and let you think about that for a little bit. Who, who is that person on the other side of the line that you struggle to connect with person to person? Because they're just so different. They believe the wrong things. They say the wrong things. They smell the wrong way. Who is it that you put over the line? So, if I'm right about the author, that orphans and widows are a symbol of something far deeper, and I'm pretty sure that I am, (laughs) then the type of religion that that marries ritual, doing the spiritual things, doctrine, believing the right spiritual beliefs, and practice is the kind that serves the other. The kind that serves the other, the person on the other side of the line. The crazy thing is, and this is where I fail miserably sometimes, the author doesn't stop there. The author doesn't stop there. He keeps writing his letter. He could have just stopped. He could just be like a one, one chapter book. That would have been okay. I could have like thought deep thoughts about who it was that I was supposed to serve. The crazy thing is, he doesn't stop. You know, somebody at some point in your Bible took a big old number two and put it right in there after that chapter, right? The, 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 when you're writing a letter, do you divide it into chapter and verses? I hope not. 
this author of this letter didn't write chapters and verses in his, in his letter. But somewhere along the way, and big number two got put in, into my Bible. I believe verse 127 and verse 2-1 are deeply connected. There's definitely a shift, a change of focus, but I'm convinced that these two are significantly connected. What does the author do? Where does the author go with the next portion of his letter? He goes from talking about this way of integrating the ritual and the doctrine and the practice of our lives by serving the other into talking about favoritism. I I just don't have the time to really dive in deep to what this portion of Scripture talks about and and the different avenues of favoritism that that the author um, speaks of. But I do have a chance to ask the question, do you think it's coincidence that the author of this book moves directly from talking about orphans and widows in the first chapter and moves into talking about favoritism? and condemning it on every level. Why would he do this? Why would he do this? This is it. In the moments of our serving, as we reach across that line that we've made to serve the other, at times, I assume a posture of pity. Sometimes I get this this air of cockiness or superiority. I'm, I'm not always even aware of it. I'm not even always aware of it. I don't notice it for a while, but it lurks, and it works like a poison inside of my soul, decaying from the inside out. How do I know? What's the test? What's the test for me of, of how I'm doing at serving the other? How do I know that I've clearly crossed over into an unhealthy place of serving people? It is most quickly given away by a lack of love. The whole favoritism thing, the antidote, is love. It's solved by love. And I can go through my whole day, I can go through my whole day caring for people and serving people, uh, get the kids up, make the kids lunches, come to work, get stuff done that needs to be done, have conversations, even pray for people, pray with people. And as I pause after tucking the kids into bed, and the air hangs in the house for a few quiet moments before I get to all the other stuff that I have to do. The question haunts as it hangs. How well did I love today? I did a lot of things. I, I got a lot of things accomplished. When you live in a house of eight people, you got to get lots of things done every 24 hours. It's the way it works. But how well did I love today? When we fail to love, that's when serving goes sideways. When I fail to love, serving the other becomes more about me than the person that I'm trying to serve. Folks, it's so sneaky. It's so subtle. It's so easy. It's so toxic to get into that place. Even at home with kids or spouses or at work with a boss or with coworkers. And this is where I find myself in the midst of my own journey, in search, in the search of finding the orphans and the widows of today's world, the people that I put over on that, that side of the line, the other. 
and who aren't necessarily orphans and widows at all. Strangely enough for us, for the Freeburg family, it has led my family back into the world that probably most clearly resembles orphans in today's society. Lynn and I had, had been interested in caring for kids in this way for a long time. Uh, back in the late summer, early fall of 2011, we decided that it was time, so we began to research the process, and we started the application and the training. Um, since being licensed, we've had four wonderful children placed in our home, and it's been, it's, it's had some wonderful moments. <laughs> it's had some tough moments, too. Um, and can I, I just, can I just take a moment to say, we were, we were done with diapers in our lives at one point. Our, at one point in our lives, we had put the diapers away. We didn't have to buy them anymore. We didn't have to change them anymore. And, and like I was the dad who was like, it's time to celebrate. We got the last one potty trained, you know. I, I think we went out to eat at a, red, a restaurant, you know. I think, <laughs> we're going out, kids. I, th- I think I made a short speech or two. Like the kids were munching on chips or breadsticks or something. And, and <laughs> I was like, the kids weren't listening. But I was really happy that we were out of diapers. We're back in diapers. Diapers aren't fun. Sorry, I'm back. That was just a little journey there. Uh, it's in this strange and odd and taxing and overstressed system of foster care that I have found the other There are so many hurting and broken and sideways situations around today. And I'll tell you what has surprised me. It shouldn't have surprised me. Looking back, it shouldn't have surprised me, but it did, and it still does. I've found several others in this system. The other that God has called me to serve has most definitely been those children. What a joy it is to to love a child and to care for a child, provide for its needs, to protect them as they develop into the person that God has created them to be. That's, that's why we do it. That's why we're involved. But I found some other others through this process. What about their parents? What about these people who have lived in such a way that a, a government agency had to intervene and who are now working to get their children back? How do I authentically love them? What about their caseworkers? What about all the different people whose daily lives are consumed with not only the four children who we've brought into our home, but dozens and dozens and dozens of other stories? How can I be light to them? And how can I serve them? I'm challenged with these thoughts. I'm challenged with these thoughts of of how do I serve those people and care for them and reach out to them. Um, and I am I am truly impressed by the people that I that I interact with, people who have to bear the grief of of many stories that break their hearts. And I, I deal with a few of them, and I do the best I can to care for the people. That I, that I do, and I, and I rely on the love and grace that I find in this community of faith and, and that I find in worshiping our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But I'm also impressed by a bunch of people who have no faith at all that continue to do the same thing that I do. Sometimes I'm challenged because I think that um, the church 
feels like it's got this serving thing figured out. And yet I see a bunch of people involved in this system that don't have faith to rely upon at all. And they just want to care for children. And they just want to, to reach out and, and minister and to serve. And I'm challenged by that because I'm impressed that they don't have the God that I serve on their side. And yet they've made the same choices that I have to reach out and serve. I'm challenged by that. And I, and I ask myself some some questions sometimes that say, if I didn't have Jesus, how would I maintain this level of care? How would I maintain this level of love? And it causes me to pray deeply for these people that I have the privilege of working alongside of. You know, it's easier and it's safer to kind of wear blinders. It's easier to say, you know what? <clears throat> we got Freeburg Nation here. Here we are. There's lots of us. And we're, we're moving through life. I'm doing the best I can with the kids that God has given to us um, and they're placed with me and, and I'll kind of just let all the other stuff play out the way that it will because you know what, it's going to play out. I don't, I, don't have to, I don't have to get involved. You ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like, wow, this is, <laughs> this is all I got. This is, this is all I can handle. I got my own stuff that I can take care of. This is my area right here and I got it. Maybe perhaps today some of you, some of us need to look across that boundary that we've created, look outside of that area that we've been comfortable taking care of. Perhaps there is the other waiting on the other side of that line. You see, as I look at the life of Jesus, and this is again where we look to this whole book to help us understand every verse that we, that we find there. As I look in this book in Mark 2, as I look at the life of Jesus in Mark 2, he ate with the sinners and the tax collectors. He went and had a meal with them, and he partied with them so much he got himself in trouble by the religious. In Luke 5, he reached out and touched the man with leprosy, the untouchable. Oh, you can't touch them. You're going to catch it. You're going to catch the disease. He reached out and touched him. Probably touched a man who hadn't been touched in decades, had forgotten what it feels like to feel human skin. In John 4, he spoke to the harlot of a town who had tried marriage five times and had given up on that ritual, and he asked her to serve him some water. Did you hear what Mike read? Story of the woman at the well. Samaritan woman. This woman was untouchable. She came to the well at the sixth hour. The sixth hour was the sixth hour of the day, so it was right about noon, the hottest part of the day, the most illogical time to draw water. She came to the well at noon because she knew no one would be there. Jesus surprised her, surprised her by being there, surprising by acknowledging her presence, surprised her by talking to her, surprised her by asking her, for water. The disciples came back and were shocked that Jesus was even talking to this woman and they didn't know her past. She'd been married five times. She was with the sixth or maybe it was even more than that, but she was with another man that she had even given up on marriage said, eh, it's not for me. Jesus didn't allow the other to exist. He went to where they were. He crossed the line. He went to who 
So he went to the place where they were at and said, I will, I will be here with you and I will walk with you. Some of us today know that we draw lines and we allow the other to exist. Others of us make the attempt to serve but find ourselves doing so without a sense, without an ethic of love. And I invite you today, if God's knocking on your heart, to alter your course. Say, I'm not going to allow that other to exist. I'm going to go to those people. I'm going to go to where they are and, and eat with them, care for them, and serve them in an ethic of love, true, authentic, gracious love, the kind that I receive from the Father. I'm going to ask the praise team to come and, and join me on the platform again. We're going to sing a song with a simple message as we close. Our service is not over after we get done singing this song. There's a couple other things, so I want to invite you to, to just stay connected to this service um, and, and uh, be a part of what's to come. But as we conclude this message, I simply want to ask a simple question. Who is the other in your life? Who is the other for you? Will you follow Jesus to touch the leper, to befriend the adulterer, and to invite the broken even into your home? For us, for our story, it has been foster care. That may not be your story. That may not be the place where you find your other, and that's okay. But I believe this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to stand alongside and to journey with the least of these, the broken, the scorned, the discarded, and to love them with a socially unacceptable love of Christ. I'm going to pray. If you need to come and pray today, ask God to help you with the commitments that you want to make. You're invited to do that. But more than that, if this, if this reflects your desire to bind up the broken, I invite you to belt out the lyrics as we sing this last song. We're going to sing the song, I Will Follow You. The chorus says this, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. Whom you love, I'll love. How you serve, I'll serve. Even the other.